Welcome to the Talking Solutions with the Chesh podcast. I'm your host, William Cheshire. Join me in learning about optimistic solutions to some of society's problems as we interview entrepreneurs, small business owners, and employees, among others, working to provide solutions and bring positivity into the world. Welcome back in. It's the start of 2022, and we have our first episode with a guest back on the Talking Solutions podcast. And in this episode, we're diving into a topic that I'm willing to guess that you may not be thinking much about unless you're directly involved, but it is a topic that's super important and something that's going on uh, in America, not just America, but throughout the world today as well. And we're talking about the foster care system and families, a part of adoption and things of that nature, and just uh, how we can improve the communities and the lives of some of these children. And I have with me today the CEO and founder of Identity, Mr. Isaac Eder. And Isaac, how are you today? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Isaac. Like I just kind of mentioned in that intro there, I mean, your your company really intrigued me because it was something that's obviously a, a big issue uh, in the U.S. Out, out of Pennsylvania, you guys are based. But it's something that I just don't think many people really think about unless they're directly kind of involved in that system. So, uh, Isaac, if you could just tell us a, a little bit about what identity does and then also just educate us a bit. Tell us about the foster care system and, and, and about adoption. Absolutely. Well, I'll start with the latter half of the question, you know. So I think most of us know about the the foster care system, at least in essence, you know, children that don't have parents, um, they end up in foster care and they or or families that are broken up, whether through some kind of abuse, neglect, uh, financials. There's a lot of reasons that aren't great that children end up in the foster care system. And there are tragic reasons as well. And so you know, that's one issue. And there are over 400,000 kids in our United States foster care system. And then about 135,000 uh, kids get adopted every year. And not all of those are from the foster care system. About uh, 40%, 30% are. And then there's also private adoption, which is a whole other thing um, where, you know, you can kind of have uh, it, it's very weird how the adoption system works, but you can, you know, very similar to like black market sales. It's kind of like a legal back end version of adoption. There are private adoption agencies that kind of function as um, the in-between between birth mothers and uh, children getting placed for adoption. So there's kind of two roads that adoption goes down. So there's foster care, which is non-permanent homes, just being there temporarily. And then there's adoption through foster care, which is usually a parent who has placed a child in foster care or lost their privileges to foster care. Those children can be adopted to the foster care system. So that's one form of adoption. And then there's private adoption, which is a single mother going to a private agency and them helping her place the child for adoption. So these are kind of like the avenues that fostering and adoption works and kind of where we come into play. So one of the one of the biggest issues that I see in adoption is historically what we know about adoption is that it's this beautiful thing that brings families together. And though that isn't 100% wrong. It is great that children that don't have homes get homes. What we often do is we neglect the separation and loss that has to occur for that child to have this new placement. And so we see, you know, children without home getting a home, right? Great. But when there is a separation from your biological connection, there is a break there. Um, and that break comes with trauma, grief, and pain that somebody has to deal with later, and that's the child. 
And so that's kind of where my company comes into play. What we do is we help educate families better around the adoption process. You know, we don't, we don't hate that people want to adopt or that there is a beauty in adoption. But what we don't want is children going into homes where parents are naive to the pain and trauma and grief that comes along with that process for the child. You know, being adopted myself, I've had a lot of these experiences and struggles, um, confusion around like, you know, why did I get placed for adoption and pain around that point as well? You know, I love my adoptive family, but there is a, is a, there's a deep rejection feeling when you realize that somebody who's your birth parent puts you up for adoption, whether it was for any number of reasons, they, they can be very valid reasons, but there's a, there's a pain there and a confusion and often a distrust that, that occurs there. Um, because of that. And so what we like to do is we like to help families on the front end know, hey, like, this is the realities of adoption. And it doesn't mean anything negative about your child that they come with this pain, trauma and grief, but it does mean that they're going to need different supports to succeed. And so we help families understand that. And then our current product is called the Identity Learning Community. And what this is, is kind of like a lifelong partner in your adoption journey. And so what we do is we have webinars, tutorials, a community for adopting and foster families to actually be in a community of people that understand the challenges that come with adoption and fostering. You know, if you adopt from the foster care system, especially, there's a good chance that your child spent time with their biological family or has some trauma connected to their experience in the system or with their family. And so that's a different kind of support that you need to be able to support them. There's a different set of tools and skills you need and so what our learning community does is it gives adoptive and foster families a place to feel seen, to feel heard, to feel supported. And then our tutorial collection is all about like hair care, skin care, cultural connection things, um, especially when we think about like white families adopting children of a different race. Um, we think about like cultural elements. So what can we do to help those parents understand how to connect their child of a different race to their culture? And we know race in America is, is kind of a big deal. There's a lot of cultural um, things that are connected to your experience as a personal person of color in America. And so hair care is one of those, like, we all know about that. We've all seen the TV shows. We've all seen the sketches. Well, the white family that adopts a black kid doesn't know how to do their hair. Uh, what we're doing is taking that problem and, and putting the fix right on your phone. There's a lot of places where you can go and learn how to do hair care, like YouTube and stuff like that. And that's great. Uh, but what we're doing is building a tutorial set conditioned and tailored to the adoptive and foster family experience. And all those tutorials can be, you know, seen through your phone, through your app, um, as well as monthly webinars to actually get deeper knowledge on the experience. So that's in kind of short the the adoption world uh, and what we're doing at Identity. Love it. There's a lot, a lot to, to kind of digest with that and a lot of questions that I have from that as well. I mean, one of them, of course, and we're going to get to this topic as well, is that kind of uh, cultural differences and in, in having that opportunity to connect because you do see that from time to time in, uh, in the adoption system and whatnot is you might have a kid from a different culture or even a different country that came here and things of that nature. And then you know, they get adopted. So I want to talk about that a little bit later as well. But first and foremost, uh, you mentioned the learning platform. And to me, the community drive and the solution that you're providing, which is, in my opinion, bringing in basically the new age information that we have surrounding, number one, mental health. Obviously, in the last couple decades, three decades, that's been progressed a lot. And I don't think people really think about it from the children's perspective of adoption, right? Because it's like you said, some people think, as soon as that kid gets adopted, all right, yay, cured. 
This is great. <laughs> and and like you said, it's obviously super, it's great. It's fantastic. But there are a few things going in it. So how much of the platform do you envision? Because you mentioned, um, you know, a lot of resources and education. How much of the platform do you envision of it being a community in a sense where there can be a lot of different parents that can be bouncing, you know, ideas off each other and even for the adoptees as well. How much of a community feel do you envision this having? Yeah, I mean, our goal is for it to be very community focused. I think that there's something really powerful about learning in community and also trying to create a trust in that community. You know, it gets harder at scale, but especially while we're in our early days, while we're um, in this beginning or phase we're really focused on that this community feeling being one of the key things that would bring people to the platform, right? The tutorials are great, the webinars are great, and they are unique to our products. Um, I don't want to downgrade them at all. You know, we've spent a lot of time building them out and building and tailoring them to our ideal customer. But what makes people value something or really feel connected to something is being able to see themselves and to feel like they're heard and valued. And so what we want to do first and foremost is make sure that when adoptive and foster parents enter our platform, they feel like this is actually a community that understands their experience and supports their experience. And so like our focus is, is really like that word community. How can we keep driving that home? How can I keep, you know, leading in a sense, this to be more and more community focused? You know, my dream is that as we grow and as we get more users, that parents that have the 10-year-old who's adopted will see a post from somebody who has a two-year-old that's adopted and remember those same struggles, remember those same challenges, and come in and help them. And so really, community is a huge part of the vision that we're kind of casting for this product. Yeah, I love it. And and you said something as well at the beginning. Um, I think it was, you know, we're, we're, yeah, we're for adoption. It's not that we're not for adoption, but there are just some of the things in the parents. And, and I think maybe them being, I don't know what's the right word to use for this, but maybe naive or just uh, the lack of awareness of it. But I would say a good amount of these parents that are adopting these kids are, are doing it for good reasons, right? They're doing it for positive stuff, you know, outside of the minute minority that are probably bad. But I think some of them, though, just don't quite put together in their head that, oh, yeah, this person might have the trauma. And so you get that learning platform as well. So tell us a little bit about how the learning platform works in terms of like how a parent or an adoptee or a community or uh, somebody that's just interested in it can actually use it. Absolutely. So like you can just go to our website, identitylearning.co, um, and it'll say like you'll get a prompt to join the community. But, you know, you go into the community, you put in, you kind of build like a little profile. And then you get access to like our community and webinar stuff. But right now you can actually go in there and see like all the webinars and conversations that have already happened. And so you can kind of look back and kind of see who's in there. Um, and then in January, we'll be launching kind of like our content creator, our hair care, uh, our skincare and our cooking stuff. And so it's pretty easy to access. And then if you want to do it from your phone, after you've built a profile, you have to download the Circle Communities app. And our community is built inside of the Circle Communities app. And so, yeah, it's pretty easy to access. If you have an iPhone, you can access it from your phone. And then you can either start asking questions, watch some previous webinars, look at some previous conversations, and anything that you know you feel like would interest you. Awesome. I hope it's uh, accessible for people on the Android train as well, like myself, Samsung's. Yeah, it's, it's coming. The, the, <laughs> coming. The, the Android version is coming. I've been trying to push for it, but 
you know, it, it's coming. Oh yeah, that's the that's the developer joke. Everybody always does <laughs> iOS first, and then they uh, focus yeah. more on the Android stuff. <laughs> but for good reason, <laughs> iOS and Apple's yeah. dominate the market. So that's uh, fantastic. It's very accessible. Like you said, he's got plenty of uh, opportunities for you to jump in on iOS, and then of course on the web, which everybody has access to, whether you have an Android or an iPhone going forward on that front. So Isaac, I want to get into a little bit about some of the feedback that you've been getting with it as well. And this idea, obviously, you know, you have this as a, as a history. This is something that I imagine is, you know, something you're passionate about means a lot to you. Um, so when you've spoken to other people that have been adopted or even maybe people that are currently have or are in uh, as children adopted or teenagers, not sure how that would work in terms of if you're able to speak with them or not. Um, but parents as well, what type of feedback have you been getting from kind of the, the community as a whole? Yeah, we've got really positive feedback. You know, one of the biggest issues in adoption has been the education process. And it's, it's not any secret, to be honest. You know, if you've worked in adoption or if you've adopted a child, I mean, I've talked to several parents who have been like, yeah, like when we did our adoption education hours, like we didn't pay attention. Like we had to rush through stuff just to get approved for placement. You know, it's just not a meaningful process to a lot of parents. I mean, I think that's not the adoptive parent's fault. You know what I mean? If you if you go through the process uh, to get approved to adopt or to foster, and your education requirements are, are on a two-month time frame, and you have to read six books, nobody's talking to you about it, and then you have to go through a, a, sli- a pre-recorded slide deck uh, presentation that just isn't engaging, what we can expect is for parents not to really take in that information because they're being rushed to learn. And then webinars that they're watching aren't engaging. And so for us, what we're seeing as we kind of cast this vision of a new way to do adoption and foster care education is that this could be a meaningful process. You know, parents that are 10 years down the road are like, yeah, we don't even remember what we learned back then. And like, all we remember is that like, it just wasn't engaging. Or even families that adopted last year are saying those things. They're saying like, yeah, I remember the day before all the education requirement was due, I just like rushed to skim through a book so that I could say that it was done. Um, and again, these parents are not going into adoption for wrong reasons. They're going in because they want to build their family. They want to be intentional. But what they're having to do is kind of just skim their way through whatever the state requirement is or the education requirement is, and then do all the learning on their own. So they'll go to Instagram or Facebook or Google, and that's where they're kind of like trying to get a semblance of what they should actually know. And so what we're trying to do is actually have it be intentional from beginning to end. And so that feedback has been really phenomenal because it's just not there. And it's something that's needed because it affects the experience that children have. You know, the parents are going to have one experience and hopefully they'll learn and grow and, and look on the internet or other places for real knowledge and real help, but who ultimately gets affected by parents that have wrong or naive education is that the children don't actually get supported the way that they need to be supported. And when children don't get supported the way they need to be supported, especially children with trauma, there's going to be acting out. There's going to be extra pain on top of it. There's going to be severed relationships between parents. Um, You know, I have several adult adopted uh, friends who no longer talk to their adopted parents. So that's a worst case scenario. It's a reality because of the way a lot of parents have been taught about adoption. And so what we need to do, I think, to make adoption 
a really sound and, and great thing that it can be is make sure that we're sending children into homes that the parents actually understand what they're taking on. We know children are hard. We know parenting is hard. But we have to accept the, the trauma and grief that comes with adopted children of any age, even, even infants. Though it develops later, I mean, there's tons of studies that show that this grief and trauma does still affect. And so if we're not taking that in, then we're setting parents up for failure. And even worse, we're setting children up for failure. Because when those things surface, when that pain surfaces, the first people to make them feel bad about it is usually the adoptive parents. Because what they were told was it was never be an issue. Exactly. And, you know, I was just running through my head of, again, all of these experiences are just for my personal world, right? What I've seen and, you know, pop culture and things of that nature as well. But that's one of the biggest things you, that, that you see in older type, I guess, stories or experiences or anything like that is that the parents don't think it's an issue. They're not aware it's going to be a problem. And then that child will act out against the parents because it's, you parents are everything as a kid. Right. Whether they're your adopted parents or whatever. I mean, that's these are the people that are you're putting that are trusting and guiding you to be a human being in society. And so seeing that, like you said, and having this type of platform where now parents are going to be more engaged and aware is something that I personally think is going to really, really kind of revolutionize the system a little bit um, and just some kids and then ultimately kids lives. And I don't know the numbers. I'd be curious to, to maybe, you know, these off the top of my head. Uh, but I would be curious to see, you know, what the numbers are for kids that go through foster care and maybe even the ones that don't even get adopted, you know, and what those numbers are of how well they do in society. Because, you know, I wouldn't think that it would be super great, but I'd be curious. And anyway, that's a different thing. I want to ask. Um, yeah, I, I'll just just to answer your question. I actually do have some of these off the top of my head because they're in our picture. Beautiful. Um, beautiful. What I do know is that about 50 percent of our homeless population has spent time in foster care. I know about 50% of people who don't have GED as a graduate from high school have come from our foster care system. This also includes people that are adopted, just to be clear. This is like if you spent any time in the foster care system at all. And then about 80% of people that have any experience from foster care to adoption have significant mental health issues. Um, and so how this plays out, like personally in my own life, like I've struggled with, I've struggled with severe depression since I was six years old. The first time that I realized that I was placed for adoption and that my mother had kids after me and kept, right? That was a, that was a trigger point for me. And that happened at six years old and, you know, battling like suicide attempts and those things throughout my teenage years. That's kind of what we're talking about when it comes to like significance of mental health issues in adopted and foster people. You know, I've learned how to deal with those things and gone through my own journey and healed, but that's the struggle that many um, adopted and foster teens are grappling with. Right. And then when the foster parents aren't aware of these issues, they're, they're strongly struggling with it by themselves or they're not being heard. And, and that's where the communication lacks. Yeah. No, I mean, not to cut you off, but I mean, I think that's the importance of our learning community and the community aspect of it is that um, even if you're a foster parent today who has a teenager, like you can essentially sign up for the community and ask that question like, hey, do any other parents feel like their teenagers are acting out more than they used to? And chances are like me or somebody else in the community or another parent will be like, yeah, I've experienced that or I know the answer to this and here's how you can support them. That I think is really the revolutionary part of our product is not necessarily just that it's a new way of thinking about adoption of foster education, but it's ongoing support and support that understands you, which we all know is valuable. 
Incredibly, yeah. Especially as the years go by, we're starting to really understand in almost all all areas, you know, how important it is the way you think and the way you feel and your support groups in your community. So one thing I want to ask about a little bit uh, is a little bit about the history of it a bit. It's 2022 uh, and you are having identity in this learning platform, in this community, and it's great. Uh, I will say this, and again, I'm very curious, you know, obviously you being the expert, where has this kind of been? You know, what type of educational resources have foster parents and adoptive parents kind of had access to 10 years ago, maybe? And how has this kind of evolved? When has this kind of been made more aware that, oh, hey, we have apps now, we have tools that can enhance education. We see it used in, you know, as a developer uh, learning how to code. Oh my goodness. I mean, there's tons of resources, communities I can touch on and that finances everywhere. I feel like for adoptees and, and parents in that community, that's really been lacking. So in 10 years, 15 years ago, how how was the education? Was it just the books like you mentioned before? And is this what you're doing pretty new? Are there other comp- competitors or, or how's it looking? Yeah, I will say that like there really wasn't much. Historically, in adoption and foster care resources have been low. This is probably the most there's ever been historically um, with between blogs, articles, nonprofits, you know, more dedication towards learning. But yeah, what we're doing is pretty new. The app idea is new. I'm not sure if anybody has tried to do it previously. From my research, there really isn't anybody out there um, looking at what the market, I guess, that we are serving right now with the learning community would be post-placement support. So it'd be after you've been placed with a foster or adopted child. And in terms of post-placement support is where we see the least resources. So what you're probably going to find is that there are platforms that have been created, like pre-recorded lessons and stuff like that for pre-adoptive parents, but we're seeing the biggest lack on post-adoption stuff. And I wouldn't say that the pre-adoption stuff is great or bad. It's not, it's kind of in between, like it's neutral. It's not really bad or it's not really great. And so really one of the reasons that we chose to target post-placement support first was because we saw it as the greatest need. There are so many children that are placed into homes where parents are struggling to understand. And then they're also kind of going through the struggle alone. Like I've talked to, just in the last like week or two, I've talked to so many adoptive parents who just said, like they just have trouble in their friend group talking about their challenges. Like in their friend group of other people who haven't adopted, they have trouble resonating experiences. And it kind of led me back to like what we believe about the importance of the community aspect of our platform. It's just like, there are some parents out here that are learning, not from their adoption agency or from their education, that this is going to be a different journey. And as they're learning it, they're realizing that the community around them also doesn't understand. And so resources are low in general, but especially low on post-placement support. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I haven't seen anything like that for, for my eye as well. So Isaac, then I guess with those post-learning resources and with the kind of curriculum that you're going through and whatnot, take us, uh, take us down the road a little bit about what the process looks like when you create these webinars and you create this content. I, I imagine with webinars, you're getting um, guest speakers to come on potentially and things of that nature as well. So tell us a little bit about the content and then the people that are giving this content uh, and the expertise that they provide. Absolutely. So right now, kind of in our beta season, we've been running a speaker series um, of kind of adoptees that work in adoption, talking about their journeys. We've had several authors come in who have been adopted, who have worked in adoption, um, Tony Hines, uh, Kevin Hoffman, 
And then we've had just, you know, some, some social worker speakers come as well. And really, I think the value of the webinars is that we're kind of mixing in lived experience and professional experience. So as we plan for 2022, we're bringing in some people who aren't adopted, but are, you know, mental health professionals. So they're going to talk about being trauma-informed and how do we deal with mental health. But then we're also bringing in adoptees who have the lived experience who are giving you the perspective of, I lived this, this was my struggle, this is what my parents didn't understand me, here's the support I wish I had. And so for our webinars, we're kind of coming at it from two angles, which is it's valuable to know what other adoptees have experienced, but it's also valuable to be trauma-informed, understand mental health, for social workers to come in and talk about the process. And so mixing in that mental health and reality is kind of our process for webinars. And for tutorials, it's really been just partnering with professionals. Like for hair care, we're partnering with uh, somebody who does hair care professionally. You know, she's helping us build the tutorials and kind of becoming our face um, with the cooking series. And a lot of these things are cultural. So we have a pretty big focus on like interracial adoptions. And so cooking and hair care are kind of more focused towards interracial adoptions. We're just partnering with chefs. You know, we have a chef of the month who's going to be, you know, teaching cooking stuff. You know, how can you connect your child's culture to your family, their food? These are just kind of like fun ideas that help families kind of build some of that cultural competency. Uh, it's fun, too. You know what I mean? When you bring it, when you bring about food or hair, you know, that's fun stuff. You know, when, when you're talking about cultural, you know, I, you know, my mom's side of the family is from Venezuela and stuff, but you know, I don't see that side of the family very often. So when I was a kid, we'd kind of go down and we get these arepas and all this great food. I'm like, yeah, all right. You know, so it's just, it's a fun vibe. So I think that's really important. And that leads me to kind of the, the cultural topic and whatnot. Right now, you know, what are kind of the numbers do you know that, that look like in terms of interracial kind of adoption for families? As well, because I've seen, you know, I do a daily dose of positive news and whatnot, and sometimes you get the adoptive stories, you know, and you know, and you get um, the white parents who adopt uh, kids from uh, Jamaica, for example, right? And then you have the African American gentleman who's adopted, I think, fourteen kids from the pandemic, and they're a mix of everywhere, you know. And so it's just like, what are the numbers uh, kind of look like in terms of that? Because obviously, I imagine it's it's an important part of it and, and whatnot as well. So, what does that look like? Out of the adoptions, what it seems to come down to is about like 40% of the adoptions that happen are interracial of some degree. So this could mean white adopting black kids, Asians adopting black kids, white people adopting, you know, whatever. Um, so interracial, and it's because one, people of color are obviously overrepresented in our foster care system. And so if we look at the numbers, the majority of people in foster care are white. But that's along with the demographics of people. So they're the most white people in the United States. They're the most white kids in the thing. For how many black people there are in the United States, we're overrepresented in the foster care system. That makes sense. So a large number of adoptions that happen that are transracial are black and white. But the largest transracial adoption market, so what has happened historically the most, is actually Korean into America. That doesn't happen as much anymore. It's kind of died down as international adoption has started to lock down because there's a lot of unethical practice that happens in international adoption. But historically, the largest has been Korean adoptees into America over the past like 20 years. And so those are kind of like the two markets, the two groups of people that we think about the most right now. We plan to cover everybody over time. But as we think about interracial adoptions um, and the biggest demographics, we think about Black, Hispanic, and Asian as kind of are kind of like core things 
right now with the amount of Korean and Asian adoptions that happen, we really want to make sure that we have a place for those families in our community as well. Right, right. And, yeah, and I don't want to speak out of turn here because I don't have this lived experience, but I would imagine it actually, you know, for the underrepresented, you know, the the black, the Asian, the Hispanic to go into the white homes, I imagine it might be an extra layer of trauma if those parents aren't trying to incorporate that culture because now it's like, okay, this is great, but this is not where I'm from, you know, and it's kind of adds maybe a next level to maybe the getting abandoned or whatever it might be. So I definitely see how that could be important as well. So definitely. Yeah. And, and I think it's really creative with the ideas, you know, like you said, bringing in the hair care and then bringing in the chef and bringing in all this fun stuff as well. So I guess um, when you see that, I imagine that the feedback you get from those parents is pretty good. And then I imagine they go, oh, I didn't think of this. This is great. You know, this is fun type thing because they're learning, too, as it goes. Exactly. And I think that's part of the goal here. Like when I think about what this what this means and what this could mean for adoption education, if historically it's been boring and not engaging and and parents don't feel like it has a lot of meaning or excitement behind it other than the fact that like soon they'll be able to adopt or foster then how can we change that experience as a whole right you know i often think about like companies like credit uh not credit i'm sorry a career karma who changed how people get into tech right they made a more you know, interactive and engaging experience, an easier experience. And so I think about like, okay, if other companies have been able to take the learning experience and make it more engaging, fun, and meaningful, how could we do that for adoptive and foster families? Which is kind of how we got to the learning community and why we have things that are both really needed, like hair care, and things that are also like really fun, like cooking. It's like, how do we make an experience that matters? Because, again, like I said, parenting is hard. Like, I have a one-year-old son. That's a hard experience, and he's not even adopted. You know what I mean? And so part of what I think makes us community-based and engaging and valuable is that it's an experience that isn't just so serious and cut dry and and boring. Um, It's an experience that has some meaningfulness to it, some creativity to it, some intentionality to it. And and I, I think that's what really will set us apart in the long run is that we, we have just like a really big emphasis on like, how can we just pull parents in to this? Not, not how can we like force them in? How can we like make them want to be in? Like really like want to come to the chef night or watch the hair care tutorials or post about their concerns in the community. Like we want to pull families in with the fact that we're so intentional about what we're doing, not feel like, you know, it's like a forced thing. You know what I mean? We want them to want to be a part of it. The engagement part that you mentioned earlier, too, uh, and that goes right along with what you're saying on that line, is how can you get people to be engaged with it instead of just saying, here's a book. I want you to read front to back in two months to get this done. You know, you see this with other industries and apps as well, like one that tops comes to my mind, uh, you know, Duolingo has made language learning fun with the way that jump around and do it. So uh, now it doesn't necessarily need to be fun. You know, some topics are more serious than others, but engaging is one, right? So I'm very curious to know on the flip side of that, though, what are some of the challenges that you've seen? What things have made it difficult to try to get these parents to be engaged, to get them to care about their son or daughter's hair or or food that they may have never heard of? You know, where how are you seeing those challenges to kind of educate them to want to do it? You know, I think the biggest challenge is the newness, right? Uh, we're not even a year old yet as a company, and so we're new. We've we've taken off the ground running, and it's been really cool to see us grow. 
but I think the biggest challenge is this switch in how we can do this. From the agency perspective, we have some old school agencies that have literally told me like they have in-person support groups. They don't need, their families don't need this, which totally negates the point of what, why we exist, right? We exist for accessibility and for this like constant feeling of support community, which you're not going to get at a support group. And there's also challenges for families to get to support groups. If you have a support group at eight o'clock on Wednesday nights, well, bedtime goes wrong and now you're not going to make it. Can't find a babysitter. Now you're not going to make it. But if you can log on to an app and get into a room and listen and get feedback, that's a lot easier than getting in your car and driving to the nearest church that has the support group. And so, you know, part of our challenge has been shifting the idea of what it actually means to support adoptive and foster families. Because giving them an in-person support group is great because we do need in-person interactions, but it isn't accessible, not fully. And so that's a challenge, I think, from the agency side is like, how can we change some of the thinking about what it means to support families? And I think from the parent perspective, it's like literally just about us being new. It's just, you know, I think we're still building up. We have great user feedback. And so, you know, I think it's about us kind of figuring out how do we market better? How do we get stronger in terms of actually getting this in front of families? And so I'm sure there's some hesitation, like, you know, um, this hasn't been around for long. It's new. There's no other post-support care that's done this way. I'm sure families maybe have some hesitation like those. And so like our work is really just to make sure that they kind of see our heart in the front end, right? They see like why we're doing this, how we're doing this, and how it can be important to them. And then they can make their decision from there. And, you know, we're still working on getting our marketing correct and accurate and really getting it in front of everybody. But I think those are the challenges that we're seeing. It's just jumping over that hurdle of being a new company, being a new product, and being something that's different for adoption of foster care. But our early adopters, you know, there's always that early adopter crowd. Our early adopters are fans of how it's going. And so, you know, that kind of keeps me motivated in the game is that, like, we have our early adopters. So now we're just kind of in the next phase of user growth. So, yeah, I'd say that's kind of the ups, the downs. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and the user feedback is essential, especially as you do product iterations in the future and, and things of that nature as well. You mentioned agencies and whatnot, and that maybe families see agencies and they're like, well, they haven't been offering this. So what is this random company kind of coming in and doing it for? How much of your outreach or how important, I guess, what is the weight in working with agencies and saying, hey, look, this is a tool that you you guys can endorse and use to help enhance the families that you're serving. You know, how, how much of a marketing plan is that going to be or, or a networking work there? Yeah, to date, it's been our main marketing, our plan. Only recently have we started our social media stuff. And so a lot of our core users are from agency relationships. You know, I was a consultant in the field before starting this. And so I had a lot of agency relationships. I had a lot of agencies that were really excited about this product before it even came to life. And so we kind of had a little bit of a base. And I'd say like agencies are important, but families are most important. And so I value agency relationships because I value the teamwork that could happen. I personally think that over the next five to 10 years, we could be the post-support care, right? Because a lot of what agencies a lot of agencies literally either offer no post-support care or they offer like counseling. And so what I'd love to see is agencies see us as a way to either provide post-support care for their families so they're buying their family's memberships or they see it as 
a necessary thing for their family. So they're constantly plugging us. And so agency relationships, I'd say they, they, they are important. But I think what's more important than those relationships is just getting right in front of the families. But our, 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 our real client, our families, that's, that's what's most important to me. And so some of this engagement has happened through Instagram, through TikTok, um, through Twitter, just meeting families who are already having these discussions publicly and letting them know about it. Like we've, I can't, you know, we've gotten 20 users probably just from me having engagements with them on the internet. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a marketing person myself and dabbling in social media marketing and whatnot, I can see the Instagram, TikTok, you know, reels, the video content type of stuff being pretty, pretty valuable in terms of reach and, and getting some engagement that way. But interesting. Yeah. I really like that idea to kind of partner with them to kind of offer as their post resource guide, if you will. Right. I mean, I see, and, and like you said, I see a lot of benefits of that too, because you also have, you're still getting in front of families. Like maybe you're not directly being in the family, you're using the agency as the middle person, but you're still getting in front of it there. So it's, it's really fascinating. Now, a question I got as well, and something that I think is, is important to talk about too a little bit is where is this accessible or accessibility wise? We're talking, obviously you can go online, get it right. But what about price points? Is this going to be subscription based? Is this, you know, monthly? It, it kind of, I think you had mentioned that or, and how do you kind of determine what's a good level to keep? yourselves going obviously this is a business you, you do need to make some money but also it's a social business so you're more about like you said the family so how do you make it affordable for them and, and kind of keep things going and determining that base so our, our starting price point is 5.99 a month that's kind of where we found our sweet spot and kind of where i was like okay if we can hit certain numbers this really works for us you know as we add more we'll talk about price increases and what it looks like you know as we kind of scale up but that became kind of our, our sweet spot because it's not really unaccessible, right? If you go to Starbucks, you're spending more than $5.99. And so we know that it's affordable and that 99.9% .9 of families that adopt or foster can afford it. You know, it felt like a really smart starting point for us because I think accessibility is important. And I think with a new product like this, it's important to, sh to kind of pioneer a new path. And I didn't see us starting at like $15 a month really being sustainable for us in the short, in the long term. I think it made more sense for us. Like, how do we get more users in, show that this is a really valuable space and can be really revolutionary for how we actually support families? And then as we add layers onto our product that make it more and more valuable, then we do incremental price increases um, that are also tailored to the kind of support that we're giving. Right. And so, you know, I consider like our bare bones, what we are now, which is the tutorials, the webinars, all those. Like, I personally think $5.99 a month is a good price for a family. As we add more things, we'll kind of go back to the drawing board and see. But, you know, from our feedback from parents and from agencies, I love that price point. I think it's, it's a great way to get families engaged and involved with little risk. Oh yeah, that's incredibly accessible. You know, I mean, that's, that's less than, than I would have thought, you know, had I not known the price point, right? So especially when you compare it to getting a, a coffee, I know it's a popular time of year, all you Starbucks fans yeah. out there to go get your popular <laughs> drinks, but all it takes is depending on the city you're in, it takes sacrificing one, just one. Yeah. One and, a month. And that's, and likely that you're not even going to have to do that. I mean, $6 essentially is what it is. You know, it's not a huge price barrier for what I think families are getting. And, I'd like to always, you know, as somebody who cares about this, I'd like for our price to always seem like a win for the family. Like, I want us to over deliver on support, 
over deliver on content, over deliver on the experience that our families are having in the community. So if one day we charge $10 a month, people still feel like that's a ridiculously low price. Value to me and what we're doing is really important. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of avenues that you, you, you and the team can go down to provide value for that. I mean, I mean, you're, you, you mentioned earlier just uh, accessibility and apps and listening to webinars. I mean, you, I can think of something, I mean, just like this, a podcast that could be another good uh, reason. I mean, there are just, it's limitless to talk about that as well. But kind of going forward with that, I want to know a little bit about the current plans. So we've heard a little bit where you guys are at in terms of users and understanding user behavior, what they're liking, what they're not liking. Tell us a little bit about um, what you have in, in the future plans, whether that might be rounding out investment or whether that might be putting in some, you know, potentially new features or where do you see identity going in 2022 in its second year of uh, business? Yeah. So, I mean, so it won't even be the second year of business. I started identity in May, product build from June, July, August and launched MVP in September. So May will kind of be our year anniversary. And, and by then, really what I'm focused on is, is user growth and experience. And so right now we're doing a pre-seed round, pretty low, you know, we're just trying to raise enough money to get to what I would say like is our product market fit, where we can see some really extreme growth. And so what I'd really like for us to do is one, raise that fund. But I think more than anything, the next year for us looks like delivering on that content flow, right? So we have our basic set of tutorials. We're looking at like six hair care tutorials, um, a, a chef every month coming into to the cooking stuff. Um, and we're still working on the skincare guide. And then we just hired a content creator who's going to be doing like, you know, multiple times a week posting and building engagement that way. And so, you know, I, I think if I have one one goal for like, where I would like us to be in May at that year first is I'd like to see us be at good user growth. So, you know, into thousands of users. And I'd like to see us really delivering on that, that support. You know, the next person that I want to bring in is somebody who really manages the day to day of the community. I love doing it, but you know, there's so many jobs that the founder has to do. And so I'd like to spend, I'd like to hire somebody who can really spend like all day focusing on like, what are our parents saying? What are they saying they need? What are new tutorials that we could bring? What are new lessons that we could bring? Who can we bring in as webinars that are actually like what the parents are talking about, which I think helps us grow and, and deliver on that promise of, of families feeling supported and seen. And so like for 2022, that's the goal. It is really doubling down on our mission and what we hope to do and, and trusting that um, as our users grow and come in, we can just keep scaling up that support, right? At 5,000 users, we can add a whole new level of support, another staff member, another what, what not, and all that. And so, you know, I, that that's what I see as, as our road to success. This is a different industry than a lot of what we see in tech and what we see in even social enterprise. We don't see a lot of social enterprises going after adoption and foster care like this. And so I spent a lot of time like understanding this market and how it operates and who does what. And really what I think becomes most valuable to adopting and foster families is that support element. And I think if we can really deliver on that, then our growth is kind of probably out of my imagination. If foster families are, are hearing that this platform that they're paying $5.99 a month for is delivering this kind of support, well, then other foster families are going to find out pretty fast. And so are other adoptive families. And so for me, 
I, I'm really just hyper focused on on our customer experience. Ah, I think that's so great. Yeah, because I mean, the more user growth you get, the more value you can provide. And I could tell just from that answer that you're pretty excited about adding more value and more resources. Uh, and I think that's great. So, so Isaac, yeah, we've talked a lot about identity and what, what you guys are all trying to accomplish. We've talked about um, the importance of matching these adoptive parents with some of the cultural backgrounds that they need to learn, because obviously that's huge, especially in America today, where we have so many different cultures in, which is a beautiful thing, but it does provide a bit of a misunderstanding and some problems at times. Uh, so I, I love how you're uh, engaging in that and optimizing in that. I love how you're providing a community resource with identity for people and parents to go on and connect with one another, say, hey, I don't know about this or with this. How do I deal with this trauma? Adoptees can connect with adoptees. I think it's a fantastic uh, route with identity and what you're doing. But I also am curious to learn a little bit more about yourself, if you don't mind kind of sharing uh, your story briefly as we go. I know you've touched on it a little bit earlier as well. I mean, you yourself were adopted. So just tell us a little bit about your experience and really what motivated you and inspired you to to be the guy that leads this charge and to, to kind of revolutionize uh, the adoptive care space. So yeah, I, I mean, I was adopted uh, by a white family when I was two. And so uh, I spent most of my life in, in conservative white spaces, not really seeing anybody else that looks like me. And that led to a lot of issues in my own life around like my identity, a lot of insecurity around being black, which kind of all culminated to me kind of exiting high school and going out into the world and experiencing racism for the first time. And when I was at college experiencing racism, like it was a traumatic experience for me. You know, I think, it, you know, racism in and of itself is traumatic, but when you grow up in a white space and kind of like white people are the only people that you know, and then you experience racism from them, it, it, it had a different kind of explosion for me. And it was really hard. And so I dropped out of college and I moved to Georgia to just go figure out what it meant to be black. And uh, while I was living in Georgia, I got to, you know, just really connect with one, like what I, what I was feeling as like being a black person, but also just kind of just heal. Like that, that's really, I took space. I was, I was 18 when I left. I was 19 when I moved back and uh, I just needed to heal from a lot of pain. My adoptive family really couldn't understand why race was a big deal to me. And that was also hard. So like they didn't understand why I cared about racism. That was not my experience. And like all these things that uh, we're trying to fix their identity. It took a while for my parents to come back around and understand why I was feeling hurt and, and not seen or valued. And so after like my relationship started to heal with my family and they started to understand like racism, ignorance and bias and also their role in it, you know, how like how they had raised me was in and of itself a very ignorant experience for me. It kind of just made me curious about what other families were going through. And so that curious curiosity was kind of just subtle. But I, I started a nonprofit. I don't even remember what year it was. It was maybe 17, 18, 2018, maybe. And the goal of the nonprofit was to help young people connect with nonprofits to actually like volunteer and do stuff. And so one of the events that we did was on foster care and adoption. And I spoke at it. And a couple of the agencies that we, we had sponsor that event um, asked me to come and speak again. And one agency in particular had me come every month to their cultural training. So I would talk about being a Black person in a white family and just my experience and answer questions. And after a couple months of doing it, she kind of just pulled me aside. She was like, hey, you should think about doing this. And, you know, I was young. I, I didn't care. It was whatever. Um, and so I, I just dropped what I was doing. And, and I started this consulting firm called Enter Consulting. 
that was in 2019. And so in 2019, I launched Enter Consulting in January of 2019. And our goal was just to help families prepare to transracially adopt. So we did trainings for agencies before families adopted. We did some post stuff, but mostly it was for families before they've adopted. And that experience really gave me insight into more of the adoption and foster care world and industry and made me realize that it wasn't just in interracial adoptions that we were having education problems. It was the whole adoption experience. And so that's what actually got me really hyper-focused on building what we're building in identity, um, which is really just an expansion of the work that I was doing at Enter Consulting and through a new model. I was going to agencies or doing Zoom webinars for families before, but now the goal is how do we provide more access to education and support? But yeah, I mean, that's kind of like, in short, my story. But yeah, like my adoption experience and not being understood by my adoptive parents is really key in what we're doing, right? It's my lived experience. There were times in my life where I thought I wouldn't have a relationship with my adoptive family. And that experience and the experience that I know other adoptive people go through because they've heard my story and told me, that kind of all led us here. My work at Editor Consulting had me speaking at agencies around the country and, and every agency I spoke at, like the same stories were always there. There was always a social worker who worked there who was like, we really need better education. They were always saying it. They were always saying, we need better like resources. We need better education on this topic. And, you know, being a guest speaker, being a consultant, like for you to make any money, like you can't charge $5. And so, you know, for in the model that we were doing it, it would have been really unsustainable for most agencies. Like I had a good number of clients, but most agencies weren't bringing me in every month because that was not really a part of their budget. Um, and for them to do that, I would have to go down significantly and then it wouldn't work for me. And so seeing all those issues, constantly hearing, we need better education, we need better support, we need better education, we need better support. Like all those things have been ingrained in my head for the last like three or four years. And so when it finally kind of clicked, identity and i will say like there was one day in particular that it clicked it took a long time i had ideas about like what we could do but there was one day in may that it finally clicked exactly what it could look like that's when like all these years of speaking and talking to agencies and hearing this exact same problem that we're addressing be told to me several times that's when it finally turned into into what it is today which is identity that's a great story that story really is the story that you definitely go okay this is the this is why identity was founded, right? It's an inspirational story. It's really about like, okay, from the beginning, this is firsthand experience of problems I had. It went through struggles. It went through the beginning as a kid, struggles with your own family. Sounds like a little bit of redemption with your own family and understanding coming through and then applying that to other kids and young adults who had gone through and experienced that. So that's uh, really cool. I'm happy to hear that uh, you're applying this now and, and working on this project because I think it's uh, something, again, that's very much underrepresented in the business community, especially in the tech space. And it's a problem that I don't think enough people think about, but it's something that should be a focal point because, I mean, what are children? Children are the future, quite literally the future. And if you are neglecting children, then, I mean, it's just going to lead to bad results. We should be trying to optimize as many as we can and, and enhance them. So 
yeah. So Isaac, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you know, I've been you know inspired by the conversation of what you guys are doing over there at Identity, and I want to give you an opportunity to share. Please tell us how can people help? How can people support? Even even if they're not a part of the adoptive you know community and whatnot, how can people help to raise awareness and and, and really uh, move your company forward? Yeah, I mean, obviously sharing our products, sharing what we're doing always really helps. Our website is identitylearning.co. Our Instagram is identity.learning. My personal Instagram is Isaac underscore Etter. These are all the ways that you can kind of get involved in what we're doing, sharing those with people you know, Um, especially if you go to like church or if you're in a community like that. Those are really heavy adoption and foster care communities. Um, Chances are you probably know somebody that's fostered or adopted. And so, yeah, just sharing. Um, I tell stories on my Instagram every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Like I share a clip of some part of my life or some part of my journey. And so, you know, you can follow and share those. That's a great way to just build awareness around like the experience of adoptees. And so those are, you know, those ways and come say hi, come, come hang out. And, you know, I'm sure we can find a way to get you involved. Do not sleep on the engagement on social media, people. I'm telling you, the algorithms love it. So any type of like, comment, reshare is going to go a long ways in uh, you know helping uh, the algorithm or show the algorithm that people need to see identity and it's what people want to see as well. Uh, and again, all those links that Isaac had mentioned uh, will be up on our link tree on the Instagram page. So easy access for you to get to those, including uh, his own personal Instagram website in the company Instagram as well. And you'll be uh, able to find out more information throughout the week about identity. Uh, Isaac, anything else that you would like to add before I let you go here? No, I mean, just thank you for having me. I really love being a part of this in your podcast. And, uh, yeah, I'm just really appreciative to be here. I'm more than happy to have had you. I look forward to maybe uh, bringing you back on in the future. We can get an update to see where identity is at. Uh, again, this is a, an exciting platform. And, and again, when I learned about it and saw what you were doing, I, I got pretty excited. I was like, oh, wow, this is something that, you know, is kind of untapped and that has a lot of serious potential for a lot of different things. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it, Isaac. Yeah. Thank you. See ya. That's the founder of Identity, Isaac Etter, joining us on the podcast today to break in our next round, the next year, 2022, the first guest on the podcast. Excited to be back and and to be interviewing great uh, entrepreneurs, founders, authors, employees, whoever it might be that are providing solutions to some of society's problems and whatnot. So excited for what the new year has to bring. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, again, you can uh, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at Talking Solutions a Podcast. Until then, I will talk to you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Talking Solutions with the Chesh Podcast. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode, and you can find out more about our featured guests and their solutions on our Talking Solutions Podcast Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube channels as we focus on highlighting individuals providing solutions to social problems and bringing optimism to the world.